all bad things. Tragedy. Tragedies, disasters. That's bad things. Trigger warning for everything possible. What? <laughs> I'm Rachel. And I'm David. And this is All Bad Things. Welcome, everybody. Welcome. I catch you off guard there. <laughs> you did. <laughs> Follow us Insta, X, Facebook, TikTok, Twitch, Threads, Blue Sky at All Bad Things Pod. Email us allbadthingspod at gmail.com. Join our Facebook discussion group, our subreddit, and our Discord. Do all of those things. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> ah, what you drinking? I am drinking the <laughs> finest national local beer on the market. And you are drinking, it looks like a, <laughs> I was going to say it looks like a tonic in a Red Dead Redemption 2. Because it's like, in the brown <laughs> bottle, yeah. yeah. Well, a glass bottle too. Yeah. Like a glass bottle that you could severely injure somebody with if you hit them over the head. Oh, yes. It's a heavy bottle. <laughs> yeah. This is Health Aid Kombucha Ginger and Lemon. There you go. Do you want to try it? I Yeah, sure. Okay. Why not? Let's see. Kombucha is not my thing, really, but yeah. let me see. Yeah, that, that that's not too bad, that one. No, it's really not. It doesn't have that vinegary taste that no. some, of, some of them do. I think the lemon is the uh, is the key. Yeah. It's yeah. a little more citrusy than yeah. anything. Yep. Anyway, that was Kombucha <laughs> Corner. Kombucha Corner. So this episode is coming out the Monday of Thanksgiving week here in the United States, which we there's certainly plenty of things we could discuss surrounding why we have Thanksgiving and the certain problematic things surrounding the United States and our uh, relationship with indigenous people. Well, our uh, our Canadian brethren have uh, Thanksgiving as well. Well, it's they just, had it last just, month, right? Right. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, it's just always uh, it's in, it's early on October. Our, it's, it's, on, it's on our Columbus Day, it right? Is. Yeah, I <laughs> think so. even yeah. more problematic, obviously. Yeah. But, um, but I would just like to say what I am thankful for this year. I am very thankful for listeners groups because <laughs> guess what we're doing tonight <laughs> i'm gonna guess a script by me Mm-mm. well that was oh the, that was last week that was the surprise twist last week yes <laughs> that's not coming again for a while dear listeners and oh great <laughs> that's good to know and if you had to guess whose script we're doing well i know we uh did not do Stevens last week. Because, That's right. Because of mine. That's right. Because of my genius. Yeah. Well, because of your script. Yes. Well, yeah. Genius script. Yeah. Your script. <laughs> I I am always very grateful when you do a script. Yes, okay. you're right. It is Stephen. Mm-hmm. And I picked one that Stephen said was a bit more unusual and lighthearted because I kind of felt okay. like something a little more lighthearted this week. Steven's not generally lighthearted. No. <laughs> Steven can get some pretty heavy stuff, <laughs> he, he right? He can get dark. He can. <laughs> I mean, it is a disaster podcast after all. So this, I I find the, um, the title very intriguing because I know who this person is, but I don't know much about them. So okay. this is the story of Hector Berlio. The Life and Loves of a Drama King. Have you ever heard of Berlioz? No idea. Okay. So, um, it's because he's a composer. Oh, I was going to guess, like, Broadway. Like, because you said Drama King. Oh, yeah, so, right. Uh-huh. So, that's where I was going. But, yeah, composer. That works, too. Mm-hmm. As far as a Drama King goes. We, we've go. all seen Whiplash, and we must know that that's, <laughs> that's, what, that's just what it's he like. He was a conductor. Did he Did he compose, too, the J.K. J.K. Rowling the, the J.K. Simmons? <laughs> Wrong J.K. Much less problematic J.K. J.K. Simmons. <laughs> was he a, um, a composer, too, or did he just conduct and teach? In that? It's been I'm, a while since I'm guessing he was all of those things, given his attitude, but in the movie, he composed... And he did of, compose, kind of, ta- or not composed, conducted, conducted mm-hmm. and kind of taught by like throwing things at people, by abusing people. <laughs> yep. I mean that's you that know, is one way to teach somebody. That's back on Netflix. <laughs> I will say 
I'd be willing to watch that again. I feel like you need years in between viewings. And it has been but... years in between. <laughs> yes. Like we saw it that one when time it came and out, it was like, basically, yeah. which I think was like 2016, something like that. Yeah, it was several years ago. And oh. yeah, like after, here's my main takeaway from that movie after watching it for the first and only time was like, I felt like I was being abused and I was just watching the movie. Well, that's, a, <laughs> yeah, it was really well done in that respect, yeah. right? Yeah, for sure, but. And I, I'm positive he won I think supporting he did. actor. I think he did. Mm-hmm. Like, duh. Like, yeah. Oh, was it Miles Teller who played the kid? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, th- this is a, a Stephen anyway, yes, script. So, thank you, as always, Stephen. So, disclaimer. I have used Berlioz's own autobiography researching this script. That's an excellent source. The British have a special term that describes Hector quite well. That word... <laughs> This is this is a great new word we'll have. Is cockwomble. Cockwomble. I think we've heard that before, haven't really? we? Really? I think from Stephen himself. Oh, pos- yes. I guess possibly. Yeah. Um, and That's a good one. It is. Stephen inserted British slang for a person, usually male, who is prone to make outrageously stupid statements and or inappropriate behavior while having a very high opinion of their own wisdom and importance. See Donald Trump. Yeah. <laughs> The cockwomble. The king of cockwombles. Yeah, for sure. The cockwomble of the walk. <laughs> the guy who literally, on record, lost more money in the 90s than anybody else. That's and that's not That's not for debate. Like, it's, <laughs> we've got his tax returns from the 90s. Well, plus he also made up the value of his buildings. Well, that's stuff. what he's... Yeah. Well, he's already... He's already been ruled that, yes, he did commit fraud. Mm-hmm. It's... Now they're just trying to go over what the penalty for that's going to be. Mm. And he's in the lead for president for next year. Yeah. So what the fuck? God bless America. Right. Yeah, we might be going to Australia sooner than we thought. <laughs> New Zealand will join Stephen. Either way. The continent. Maybe Antarctica. Maybe we'll go there instead. Well, that is a continent, I suppose. <laughs> All right, there are incidents in his book that have been proven to be untrue or modified to seem more dramatic. For example, he says he escaped medical school by jumping out a window the first time he was asked to dissect a corpse. Yeah, that seems a bit dramatic. We knew... He could have just left. Right, right. We know this isn't true. He did hate cutting up dead bodies, but he took a while to leave. Okay. Yeah, like... (laughs) <laughs> I have a friend that has the ability to rewrite his life story and believe his new narrative. He will talk to me about events I was involved in that I know didn't happen that way or didn't happen at all. Barely has believed that you should never let the facts get in the way of a good story, and I suspect that after a while he believed his inflated version of history. I have shamelessly followed his account because it makes for a more interesting podcast. Okay, sure. that's fair. Yeah. Um... That That is an interesting thing, because I do think that that does happen to some people, where they embellish or change details to a story to make it more interesting, but then they start to, like, re-remember it as the... As, as the, the embellished details. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, in a way, they're being, quote, honest, in that that's how they think it happened, but it was due to their own editing. Sure. Well, that's why, uh, um, that's why first-person testimony is so... Not discredited, that's the wrong word, but, like, right. unreliable. Mm-hmm. Well, because, can be. Uh, correct, yeah, because if a weird situation happens all of a sudden, mm-hmm. like, your brain is not reacting in normal ways. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and memory is anything but perfect. <laughs> exactly. So, like, like, oh, it was a, like, he had a green shirt on. Like, no, he was recovered in a gold shirt, but whatever. Right. <laughs> <laughs> So sources are The Life of Hector Berlioz by Hector Berlioz, Wikipedia, and random shit I have picked up over the years due to my interest in classical music. Thank you, Stephen. Mm. I am I didn't realize you were a classical music fan. Maybe you can... I've always thought... I've always heard it as Berlioz, but I don't know if it's Berlioz or Berlioz, because there's a Z at the end. It's oh. French, so mm. whatever. All right. Those damn French. <laughs> a slight rant followed by the slightly pompous, boring bit. Classical music snobs piss me off. (laughs) This starts with the people who choose the music to be played at a concert. No other music genre would start a concert with their least popular song. It's almost like they're trying to turn people off on purpose. 
The formula for a concert is always the same. The first piece will be some, quote, modern piece put in there to make you think. <laughs> Generally, it will have no melody at all and be really hard to listen to. The second piece will probably be slightly more popular and worth a listen, and I have no problem with this as it is quite often where I can be pleasantly surprised. The last performance will be the gets bums on seats music. <laughs> this is why everyone is here. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah, oh, classical music and just like, it kind of shocks me that there still are classical orchestras. Sure. Um, I, and I wonder how much longer they'll last. I mean, that's been debated honestly, for a long time. I honestly think they'll last forever because it's, well, it's, it's uh, a type of music that nobody else can do. And yeah, well, it, and yes, it, the orchestra, its, I'm not saying that the yeah. orchestra will go away. At the very, well, first of all, it won't go away, uh, but it's also used in film extensively. I sure. think that will continue. Um, yeah, it has a lifeblood kind of all of, all on its own. But there is definitely a how do we get people to come to our concerts edge to classical music yeah. because it's just like... Well, and there there are some hubs like I lived in one like in yeah, Rochester, New York. Yeah, well, because there's a big music school there. Right, the and the orchestras like that's something that people do in Rochester, like. It's like a cultural event. Right, thing, yeah. like ten nights out of the year, the orchestra is going to be performing at. Right. And you go, mm-hmm. and I and I have been, and it was it was fucking fantastic, mm-hmm. and a blast. We still need to. I I still, we still need to go to. A concert together because we've never been to a classical concert together. Not, I was gonna say, it was, I was gonna say, we've been to several concert, concerts. Well, yeah, we've been to Tool together. Jeez, that was fantastic. Well, yeah, whatever, it was fine. But and uh, Silver Sun pickups. <laughs> yes, our first concert together. Where you're saying, are you are you having a good time? <laughs> yes, I'm just thinking very you're like, heavily. Just, you're like I'm just studying things I'm just, way too hard. I'm just observing. That's what I do with music. <laughs> anyway. You may think you don't know much classical music, but you are probably wrong. This is very true. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 yep. it's everywhere. It's, it's in commercials. It's Well, as Steven goes know. on to say, if you have ever watched cartoons, you will know sure. shit tons. This is a scientific term meaning lots. Yes, <laughs> Of Correct. Tchaikovsky and Beethoven, as well as many other classical composers. That da-da, da-da you hear every time that big fake shark appears in Jaws has been pinched from the New World Symphony. And if you have watched Bruce Willis push Alan Rickman off the Nakatomi Plaza building in Die Hard, you've heard Beethoven's Ode to Joy. Or from his Ninth Symphony, indeed. Yeah, I mean, it's it's all over popular culture. It kind of always has been. Mm -hmm. It's part of what created popular culture. If you have ever seen Looney Tunes, mm-hmm. the whole point of Looney Tunes, what are the tunes? It's classical yes, music. Yeah. Do you remember the the Barber of Seville? Yes. One with yes. where Bugs Bunny's like yes, hiking the, himself with, up on the barber yes, chair. It's <laughs> fucking hysterical. It still and Elmer is. Fudd. It's probably still funny. Probably. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. Mm-hmm. No, yep. I mean that. I mean, what what did you do in the uh, for entertainment like in the eighteen fifties? Mm-hmm. You know, if you're in a city, you went to go see the orchestra. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I in a dusty filled like uh, concert hall fire trap yes. laden <laughs> fucking concert hall, but uh-huh. it, it wouldn't always burn down. Right, <laughs> not every time. <laughs> like sometimes <laughs> you had, sometimes you had fun. Statistically, they can't all burn down at the same time. Yeah. So, um, also I so I played for five years in a community orchestra. Um, so that's like that's the only way I was going to play in an orchestra. I was not that good on the violin. But I played second violin. And I will say, like, I thought if you do play an instrument that you can play in an orchestra, I so strongly recommend doing it, it, even if shot. it's not your, yeah. even if you're a jazz musician or something. The other thing, too, is, like, in modern day, because they're so big now, is video games have their mm-hmm. own scores. Very true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But and, I, and, like, and, like, like, uh, advertised scores mm-hmm. like buy this mm-hmm. this is the score for yeah you know what's, what's uh cyberpunk that's, i yeah. love that soundtrack yeah. that's my focus music is cyberpunk it literally i that's what i listen to when i'm trying to focus is uh, electronic video game music is perfect for that but what i was going to say is when 
when you play that music, like it really gives you a deep appreciation for it. Like it's it's, it's very complex. Pretty cool. It can it sure can be. Mm-hmm. And you can hear it, especially when you're hearing it live, because you're hearing yeah. all the different uh-huh. sections. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's just and and there is just a lot of like drama in seeing like ninety people yeah. in sync play the same thing. Uh-huh. And, you know, watching everybody uh, who's playing violin and viola, like, their arms are moving, their bows are moving in the same direction, mm-hmm. and it's, it's pretty cool. Um, all right, people will try to put you off classical music by analyzing why something is special, but you don't need to know any of that to appreciate it. That's very true. I would never listen to a lecture on a symphony before listening to the music a few times first. Good point. If the music can't stand up for itself, it's not worth listening to. Going to a lecture before hearing the whole performance is like having a comedian explain why the joke they just told is funny. I do enjoy learning more about the music I like, but not until after I have heard the piece a few times first. Very good point. Although there will be many references in this podcast to the Symphonie Fantastique in this podcast, I don't recommend listening to it if you are not familiar with classical music. It's just under an hour long, and part of the reason it is so great is the story behind the music. The symphony is a piece of program music. This means it is written as a story about Berlioz's passion for a beautiful woman. There is a program handed out to you before the performance to tell you what you are listening to. There may be a fine line between brilliance and madness, but Hector Berlioz was somewhere near that line. He was nuttier than the than squirrel shit. <laughs> <laughs> it's his fantasy about tripping after taking opium due to unrequited love. Okay. Okay, that's, that's, that's talk about being mm-hmm. committed. Mm-hmm. If you do want to hear some program music, try Beethoven's Sixth Symphony or Vivaldi's Four Seasons. You won't need to read anything to enjoy the melody or even know what the music is about mm-hmm. as it, it is used in like so so many films and tvs sure. and, and um and pop culture yes yeah. but i every time i hear um i think it's fall or is it winter the um it's all strings. You're conducting right now. Yes, well. I'm just struck by, like, this is so overplayed, but it is so good. That's the thing about, like, that happens in pop music, too. You like a string section. Like, your favorite Coldplay song is... Viva La Vida. Yeah, which I'm like, meh. Really? I think it's great. I mean, the production dun, dun, is fantastic, dun, 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 but to me, they have they have way better songs than that. But but I, I could see, but I could see how a music it. person would really appreciate that song because it is very well produced. It's very well. There's a whole string section to the band that mm-hmm. they didn't have on really any other album. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. I, I, mean, just... I mean, scores are. I mean, it makes a film. Yes. I mean, mm-hmm. sometimes it can like literally just make a film. Mm-hmm. The drama and the suspense and the, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, there, there are so many films or that... Or it can ruin it like fucking it Oppenheimer. It can. And stop, like, shut the fuck up. Stop playing music but for like but two that's, seconds. But that's pretty rare. It is rare. But like mm-hmm. Jaws, everybody knows the, the mm-hmm. score to Jaws. Everybody knows the score to Star Wars. Everybody knows the Indiana Jones. Well, remember... You know. <laughs> The one Academy Awards we watched where it was John Williams conducting a tribute to yes, John Williams. It's John Williams. Which, which, you know what, really made sense. It did. It did. He's kind he's of been the predominant he's, figure. He's like, I'm the best ever times two. Uh-huh. You know, I think, um, oh my God, this is going to be the world's longest episode just from our, our side rants, but um, I don't know if it's, I need to look into this. I don't know if it's always the same uh, composer because... You know how some filmmakers will always work with this, like Spielberg sure. and John Williams, yeah. you know? Um, but I think uh, Jordan Peele, whose films I absolutely mm-hmm. adore, his the scores in his films, I think, are really good. Yeah, and I, uh, and, I couldn't tell you who does them. I know, that's the thing I was wondering. I don't know. And now I'm just really going off on a side rant. Okay, Hector Berlioz. <laughs> Give us some love, Jordan Peele. <laughs> Hector Berlioz was born on the 11th of September, 1803, almost exactly 200 years before 9-11. 
His dad was a doctor in southeastern France who worked in a commune. There is no mention of what his mother did, but she gave birth to six kids. Probably, like, Hector's the only one that lived, right? Or just that was normal. Oh, wait. Three of the children died young. Okay. There go. 50%. Not (laughs) bad. That's not bad. Yeah. Pretty good for the time. (laughs) He was the only boy, and he had two younger sisters. His mother was a strict Roman Catholic, and his father was agnostic. Ooh, that'd be a... That'd be a trick. It's so interesting for that time. Yeah, right? But, uh, to be... Uh, to, well, yeah, like... There have always been... There have always been, like, agnostics mm-hmm. and atheists, but... Like, 200 years ago, probably less so. I mean, this is post-enlightenment. It's possible. I, I guess. Yeah. His parents had an agreement that all the children would be raised in the Catholic Church. And this was his introduction to music. Oh, my God. Like... <laughs> That I that is the one thing church is good for is music. Sure, it is. Yeah, that's about it. <laughs> but <laughs> even electronic drum set over doing it, guy. <laughs> yes, <laughs> <laughs> that's the place where he could mm-hmm. electron electronic drum set overdo it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> the local school he attended closed down, so his father homeschooled him. His dad wanted him to be a doctor, lawyer, or accountant, <laughs> like every parent ever probably. But Berlioz seemed to be more inclined towards the arts and was reading poetry at a very young age. A lot of the poetry he read were love poems, and I have to wonder how much of that influenced him early on in his life. His love of music must have started early as well, because he started writing music at quite a young age. With no formal training in music, he just worked out the harmonies for himself. Unlike most composers of the time, Hector couldn't play the piano. That is unusual. Yeah, for the... Yeah, mm-hmm. especially for being a, a composer. Yeah, many like, composers like how do you, play piano. That just seems to be like a basic for any like type required? of required. Well, for any type of producer, that seems to be which a composer kind of, well, kind of not, is not necessarily. But you know what I mean. Not necessarily. But like any time, any time you see, even with um, the uh, <laughs> the Real Housewives girl, that she's like, I've been working on this song for months. Oh, like, um. <laughs> Was it uh, <laughs> the, the, the the Luanne de la Seps? Whatever. The, who, um, one of them. Oh, the, not don't be tardy for the party. That's Kim Zolsek. <laughs> what it, what was her? What was, was her? Something about a uh, elegance like, is love. Yes, yeah, that's my the one. friend. Yeah, but even the producer was like, that's how he was trying to teach her. Like, yes, the was notes. at the piano. It was on the mm-hmm. piano. He was like, you're going to do buy boom. Class, that's yes, it. Of co- well, of course, <laughs> her biggest hit. She worked on it for months. <laughs> Money can't buy. But I remember plans. asking you that, like, why do producers always show people, like, what range to sing in with the piano? And you were like, because it's the easiest way to like hit a it's, key. Yeah, or... it's bare bones. You can yeah. just instantly get your key. Yeah. Because yeah. otherwise, when you're learning a melody or a song, you need the context of sure. what it sounds like. So a piano right? just kind of provides pianos that. Is really, piano is just a really easy way to do that. Guitar can do it. Mm-hmm. What's hardest is an but instrument. But I always see producers being like, mm-hmm. I want you to sing in boom, bing. And like right. they'll, they'll mm-hmm. always be playing a piano or a keyboard. Well, it's the easiest thing. A key, well, piano is really good for you can play full chords and get the whole context. Or you can play a single note at a time. Mm-hmm. You can do the same thing on guitar. But you couldn't do that on a saxophone. You couldn't do that on a on a trumpet. You know, you can't play multiple notes. So those those types of instruments, specifically piano and guitar, are a lot easier to give the harmonic context for. It, so. That was production. <laughs> that was production. We've had all the corners. Tonight. So many corners. Corner. 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 Um, so unlike most composers of the time, Hector couldn't play the piano, but he taught himself to play the flute. He wasn't great at playing That's the flute. Hard. <laughs> it is, but apparently he wasn't great at it. But later on, he became quite an accomplished guitarist. Okay. okay. So he I was like that. he was like the uh, he was like the guy that played in the British Open, like for the flute, but for golf. Oh, uh, <laughs> Maureen Flitcroft. Yes. Maureen Maurice. <laughs> Maurice Flitcroft. He's like, I'll just go out here and try it. <laughs> While visiting his maternal grandmother at the age of twelve, Berlioz became love struck with. Estelle Duboeuf. She was six years older. Oh, God. That means this 12-year-old had a crush on an 18-year-old woman. Well, uh, it was 200 years uh, ago. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> and that didn't seem to bother him. We'll give him a break. 
shit. I mean, that shit was still go. That shit still goes on today. It still goes on like in the like certain areas of the United States. There are on more than one occasion I've read an "Am I the Asshole?" post on um, Reddit, yeah, yeah. where someone is like talking about a relationship problem, like, "Oh, am I the asshole in this situation?" And they'll be like, "So I." 37 male and my wife 22 female and then they'll be like dated for six years before we got married and then everyone does the math in the comments and they're like no 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 (laughs) and then everybody just says you're the asshole for that yes this is all bad (laughs) like everything else doesn't matter you're the asshole we're surprised you made it to reddit (laughs) like you should be in jail no actually that's usually where that goes (laughs) that's right a Reddit jail or a physical jail or, or both. Uh, as they could have only met a few times when he was visiting his grandma, it is not known if she actually knew of his existence at all. I can't see an 18-year-old woman t- taking a 12-year-old boy very seriously. And Hector wrote quite a bit about how pretty she was, not giving much detail on her personality at all. <laughs> yeah, well, don't yeah. doubt that. Hey. I'm sure the 12-year-old was really appreciating her personality. Sure, it was wonderful. <laughs> yes. It is interesting that later in life he couldn't remember the color of her hair, but she, he was quite able to go into great detail about the pink lace-up boots she wore. <laughs> so he's got a shoe fetish, apparently. For quite a few years, I ran a factory next to an establishment my workers and I nicknamed the House of Happy Endings. <laughs> the girls spent quite a time... <laughs> Let's hope that was just a naive title. Yeah, the girls spent quite a bit of time waiting around for customers. <laughs> they would not. quite often come over just to get away from the place and to tease me and my employees. They would have considered fuck me now boots as a pretty mild fetish. <laughs> yeah. It was always entertaining watching the punters turn up and try to sneak into the building without being seen. Obviously, the sight of these boots left a lasting impression on young Hector. Estelle certainly stuck in Berlioz's mind, and he called her his Star of the Mountain. Can you imagine a 12-year-old, like, mooning around for an 18-year-old it's... woman calling her the Star of the Mountain? I'd be like, yeah, what the like... fuck is wrong with you, child? But then, I, I, yeah, I mean, but then again, like, your currency, like, 200 years ago was like, can you survive? Like, like... And reproduce, yeah, right? Right. Can you hunt a deer? Uh, <laughs> Not... and can you, you know... <laughs> This is like... France high society. I don't think we're talking about well, that's like, true, but yeah, it would have been nice to have that skill. <laughs> that's always a good skill to have, I think. <laughs> to Berlioz, she must have been more than just a child's infatuation. When he finished his autobiography, <laughs> oh God, with Stella, Stella, I can now die without bitterness or anger. <laughs> so he was a I little like... I thought he was like, going to go for a rhyme on that Stella! one. Stella! Yeah. Like, Stella, Stella, I can't live without you. <laughs> Did you ever write poetry? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Better than that. I mean, yes. Like, <laughs> can't you tell? <laughs> ever heard it? <laughs> it's called poetry. Ever heard of it? Uh, Barely I was went to Paris and studied medicine. He hated every minute of it and detested cutting up dead bodies. I mean, it'd be a little disturbing if you liked cutting up dead bodies. But well, I mean, if your goal is like we're, uh, we're I'm trying to learn about that. I find it fascinating on that front. Which, I could see which that. I'm guessing is like 98% of them. But yeah, there's probably going to be like, there's always like the weird guy, like wherever you are. I remember once a med student told me that um, usually the bodies that they dissect in medical school are like, um, like people who... Um, were experiencing homelessness or like there there wasn't that kind of makes sense like I mean a, an arrangement for their body sure. but that still feels very like I don't know if that's still the case or if that was like a weird situation or what that still feels very non-consenty I don't know well I'm also guessing there's like, some if a homeless person passes away they're not getting a plot somewhere so do they not have like I mean, they used to call them paupers' graves or whatever, but... I honestly don't know. I mean, they might just send them to medical students, which is, which is what it sounds like. Oh. I mean, I have no problem if I were to get dissected by medical students, <laughs> but that's because I could consent to it. I don't think someone... I, I think, true. I think yeah. someone should have consent with what happens to their body even after they die, you know? Uh, I, but these people are in that position. 
Yeah, I know, like, and that really sucks. It is. It's sad. I just made myself sad. Anyway. Okay, next. <laughs> Let's get back to so, Barbie. So our next uplifting tidbit. <laughs> Where are we going now? So he lasted in medical school about a year before finally dropping out. <clears throat> he had secretly decided that he wanted to be a composer, <laughs> but it took... Oh, I'm sorry. I, I just skipped a sentence. So, you know, that Stella, Stella, I can now die without bitterness or anger... It is said that the opening motif in the Symphony Fantastique was inspired by his desires for Estelle. So, sure. Anyway, so he dropped out of med school. He had secretly decided that he wanted to be a composer, but it took him a while to face up to his father. Needless to say, his dad didn't take his change of career well. His only source of pleasure while going to medical school had come from going to the opera, and this may well have helped him decide to change professions. He spent the next two years composing music, even though he had never taken much time to study it. His dad wasn't impressed and tried to convince him to be a lawyer. Like, well, if you don't like dead body, well, if you don't like cutting up dead bodies, then you yeah. become a lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> Read these books. Right. Instead. Uh, he may ha- well have done. He may well have done well in this profession, as his skills as a purveyor of bovine excrement were very good. Stephen cracks me up. Bovine excrement. Bullshit. Yes. Yes. (laughs) In one of his first attempts at opera, Berlioz used Estelle as his muse. He abandoned the effort because he couldn't get the hang of writing lyrics and he couldn't talk anyone else into writing them for him. Can you imagine if, like, when you were 18, there was some rando kid you saw a couple of times who was 12, and then, like... 30 years later, you come to find he's a famous composer. And, (laughs) like, half of his work was inspired by you. Like, Like, by you. That's creepy. That's creepy. Yeah, that would be kind of weird to find out. It'd be like, like, it'd be like, huh. Like, I inspired this guy's entire career. And then it'd be like, but wait, I inspired this guy's entire (laughs) career. (laughs) Like, I think I may have seen him once or twice. We didn't really have any interaction. Yeah. This is a little creepy. I wasn't trying to be a muse. No. (laughs) (laughs) find myself amusing and then you could start your own band that said that was called accidental muse and then you could oh, base all career off the guy that just based his creeper creepy career off you <laughs> guess so <laughs> and see where it goes <laughs> so hector falls in lust one fateful day hector decided to attend a performance of romeo and juliet staged by a traveling group of english actors berlioz was spellbound even though he couldn't understand english Henrietta Constance Smithson was playing Ophelia, and the young Frenchwoman was instantly smitten. Oh, sorry, the young Frenchman was instantly smitten. This was the lady he had to marry. That's This called, guy just falls, crushes, just that, has crutches. It's called, crushes. it's also called instantly smitten. <laughs> Harriet was born on the 18th of March, 1800 in Ireland. Her father and mother were both actors. There is little information on them, and they had little to do with her upbringing. Reverend James Barrett looked after her from the time she was one year old. He treated her as if she was his own daughter. Unfortunately, he died when she was just eight years old, so Harriet was shipped off to boarding school by her birth mother and father. <laughs> this is sad, but I'm guessing not unusual for that I was going to say, yeah, probably not. <clears throat> she began acting at the tender age of 14, and joined her parents' company of actors a year later. She was considered an okay actor in England, but her career blossomed when she went to France. This is surprising as Harriet performed in English as she couldn't speak French. Her more natural style of acting appealed to the French, and the fact that she was quite pretty gave her an advantage with the audience. In France, she changed her stage name to Henrietta Constance Smithson. She had been... Oh, I don't know what she had been born, but anyway... Um, after two years, her popularity in France began to dwindle, and she headed back to London. So, the first attempt to woo Henriette. Oh, her, she was born Harriet. and Henriette. Henrietta, gotcha. Hector decided the best way to get Harriet's attention was to stalk her. <laughs> well, it's, it's... It's his M.O. <laughs> it's, it's a way. It's a way, yes. Uh, it's is the, it the best way? the best way? Like, I mean, hey. you know... Mm. Then again, again, we we have to reframe this around. This is 200 years ago. 
Well, at this point, it's in the 1820s, maybe, 18-teens, yeah. something like that, but still, yeah. yeah. 200 years ago. <laughs> You're right. That is 200 years ago. Right. It's about to be 2020. That's right. That's right. That's true. Man, do you ever? does that ever happen to you where occasionally you'll just get a different year stuck in your head that you measure years against? I, for me, it's 2000 just because it was such a benchmark year. Sure. But... That was almost 25 years ago, so <laughs> it's getting a little old, but... Uh, Coming up on 24. <laughs> yes. He sent her many letters and flowers, all addressed to Henriette, all written in French. The lust of his life promptly binned them, as she only spoke English, and he hadn't even gotten her name right. <laughs> when that didn't work, he shifted into a flat close by so he could continue stalking her. Oh my God, that is very creepy. It's... Strange. Yeah. At best. <laughs> he made her life so difficult that she wanted nothing to do with him. <laughs> this man. He started writing music about her. First just small pieces, but later on he began the symphony fantastique. We don't know when Berlioz started using opium, and it does feature in the symphony Hector wrote for Harriet. <laughs> oh my god. Berlioz felt that there was nothing more likely to get a young lady you're trying to impress interested in you than to write some music. Uh, it reminds me of that Freaks and Geeks episode where Jason Siegel's character writes that um, late, Lady L for Lindsay, for Linda Cardellini's character, and he performs it for his friends who are, like, mortified. Wasn't he, wasn't he trying to, like, do, like... A, an early version of uh, not Rush. Oh no, he he said he serenaded her with "Lady" by yes. Styx. Yes, but Styx. this is separate. He he okay. wrote a song for her, performed it for his friends. They were mortified when he went to like sit down and perform it for her. He picks up his guitar. Seth Rogen's character literally grabbed the guitar out of his hands and pretended to do a bit and smashed the guitar like Pete <laughs> Townsend. To save him from the embarrassment of performing that. I do not remember that. that was, <laughs> it was a while ago that we watched that. <laughs> we should watch it again. That's a good show. All right. I'm not going to bother you with the full program notes, but this is the first few lines and a quick synopsis of what Berlioz wrote for Harriet. Oh, <laughs> there's stage directions. Get David to read the bold text in a posh British accent. Oh, let's see. <laughs> Part one, reveries, passions, the author imagines that a young musician afflicted with that moral disease that a well-known writer calls the vague de passions, passions, sees for the first time a woman who embodies all the charms of the ideal being he has imagined in his dreams, and he desperately falls in love with her. Through an odd whim, whenever the beloved image appears before the mind's eye of the artist's it is linked with a musical thought whose character passionate, but at the same time noble and shy. <laughs> he finds he finds similar to the one he attributes to his beloved. <laughs> End scene. End scene. No, that's not a slow clap. That's, I didn't do that on the fly. I had no idea I was going to have Fair. to do that. Fair. <laughs> Berlioz used a very short melody to represent the object of his desire. He called this an idée fixe. Fixe. I think this is French. It means fixed idea is my guess. It is used throughout the music and represents Harriet Smithson. In the second mo movement, he sees her at a distance at a ball. In the third movement, he's in a field and he starts to think she is deceiving him. Note, so far the girl he is talking about doesn't even know he exists. <laughs> That's, yeah. Next, he poisons himself with opium and dreams that he has killed her. He gets condemned to death and has his and his head is cut off. He ends up in hell and his beloved turns into a witch and tortures him. What is... <laughs> this is opium. So, this is the opium talking. So, for some reason, um... Uh... Foster. What is her first name? Why can't Jody I? Foster? Jody Foster, thank you. <laughs> this is making me think of uh the guy who killed John Lennon did it for her. Oh no. Or wait. The guy who? who tried to kill and failed sadly to kill Reagan did it for Oh that's okay. John Hinckley. I've got my I've got my assassinations. Yeah. And attempted and successful ones mixed see, up. See the worst thing about but, John Hinckley was that he had But imagine being Jody Foster being like I don't know I, who right, this like, person is. The fuck is your problem? <laughs> like, yeah. Like, <clears throat> right? Hopefully somewhere she was thinking, like, 
a dead President Reagan would have been nice. <laughs> like, you should just get better at trying to do that. But That's like, why I said his biggest problem was his aim, but... Right, like, <laughs> he could have been a hero. He was this close. <laughs> oh, man. I am joking, by the way, but kind of. Only not really. The, well, the best thing about Reagan is he's dead. He's dead now. And Henry Kissinger somehow still, still not alive. dead. Still alive. Although we just found out Rosalind Carter is dead, which unfortunately for which Jimmy, means, I think that means, means James he's is... not far behind. Yeah. But he's been hanging on for a long time. Yeah. He's If he was hanging on he's for like, his wife, then he's... He's like 98, He's older than He was older than her. Yeah, I think he's like 99. Yeah. So, yeah. He's trying to hit that century mark, and when he does... Mm, yeah. It's okay, Jimmy. You can let go. You've done you fine work. Well done, good humanitarian. You were not the greatest president. Like, everybody kind of agrees on that. But, but he also bet... had really shitty circumstances. He did, but you, you know what he has been? Is a great fucking human being after that. Yes, he had the best post-presidential career of any president. Mm-hmm. Not even in question. Obama went to Hawaii, Jimmy Carter and got built Netflix, houses. And got a Netflix deal. <laughs> yes, and Jimmy Carter built houses with Habitat for Humanity yeah. for like decades. Yeah, yeah. I like mm-hmm. Jimmy Carter as a human being. Yes. His presidential record is, yeah, it's it is what it is. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he's a good human. That's why. I ha- oh, I rearranged my books. That's why I have <laughs> two biographies of him. That's why I can't find Jimmy anymore. Well, they're all color. Oh, his very best. That's one, and then I've got oh, another yeah. one. But yeah, they're color coded now, which makes it a little tricky because I used to have them by subject. But isn't it pretty? It is. Look at that pretty, pretty colors. So <laughs> that story that barely is told. I ask you, how could a girl resist such a story, especially one that portrays her as a witch involved in an orgy? (laughs) Of course, there was one problem with his composition. Harriet wasn't even slightly interested in hearing his new creation. She saw Hector as a nuisance and someone well worth avoiding. Hey, baby, how are you doing? Might sound more sexy in French, but it obviously wasn't good enough to impress his heartthrob. A brief interlude. This story is based on Hector's own account of what happened, and there is no way to know how much is true. If this is what he wrote down, I have to wonder what he told his mates when he was running in full bullshitter mode. While working on his new symphony, he met Marie Felicity Denise Mulk. Maybe. I don't know the pronunciation. She was only 19 years old and was a very good piano player and also known as Camille. Even though that's not her name. Yes. My was wife, a... Camille. Oh, was that uh, Cosby? Oh, jeez. <laughs> uh, uh, my wife, Enabler. <laughs> she, oh, yeah. Uh, anyway, back to the story. Yeah, she basically deserved to get arrested, too. Before we anyway. dig into, into Bill Cosby. Into Camille Cosby. I, I almost Jesus. said Bing Crosby. Bing Crosby. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not tarnish Bing Crosby now. <laughs> All right. It wasn't long before the relationship became physical and they became engaged. Things got off to a bad start. Hector and his future and mother-in-law hated each other's guts. Berlioz attempted to smooth things over by referring to her as the hippopotamus. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Maybe it sounded better the, in French, the, Dad. Literally the, literally the world's most dangerous land yes. animal. Yes. Uh-huh. For some strange reason, the mother-in-law didn't take kindly to his term of endearment. Hector wasn't earning much money, and Camille was making a good living teaching piano and playing in concerts. The hippo had doubts about her future son-in-law's ability to keep her little girl in the lifestyle that she deserved. To try to impress his new girlfriend, he applied to win a scholarship that would let him study in Rome for two years. After four failed attempts over four years, he finally won. Before he headed off to claim his prize, he arranged the premiere of the Symphonie Fantastique. Reactions were mixed. Camille loved it. Harriet never even showed up, even though she was invited. Hector wasn't happy with the way his new masterpiece was received. Berlioz was better known for his critique of classical music, and the other French music critics hated it. I'm not sure if Hector's future mother-in-law took advantage of Berlioz heading to Italy, or if Camille decided marrying a drama queen like Hector might not be such a good idea, but before long, she had cold feet. After three months of no letters from Camille, Berlioz was beginning to get a bit suspicious. His worries were 
proven justified when Camille's mother took great pleasure in sending him the news that the love of his life had married a guy 22 years older than herself. I'm sure the lady who he had nicknamed the hippopotamus took no pleasure in writing the letter and that she let him down gently and hardly gloated at all. Hector could have taken the split well and moved on with his life. It could have. <laughs> could have. <clears throat> being the key words. Yeah. But that wasn't really ever going to happen. He decided that the obvious way to deal with the breakup was to buy or steal a couple of guns, head back to France, and shoot everyone involved, including himself. This guy's like one of the original incels, isn't he? Yeah, kind of sounds like it. Yeah. Yeah. He came up, like, <laughs> it's like, why won't women women like me? Because you're horrible. Because you're fucking creepy? Because <laughs> like, you're terrible. It's just like, yeah. It's, it's like... Yeah, you're repulsive it's, what <laughs> it's like you want to shake these people and be like okay the first thing you need to do is like kind of shave like you don't have much to shave anyway you want to fix hey, that up that's like, not the first thing the first thing is fix your fucking personality well, that's the first well, thing i'm like make yourself presentable and no, no fix your fucking personality. well i think that those are intertwined you know what i mean <laughs> no i don't yeah. i mean i know what you mean but i disagree okay but uh <laughs> i think just fix your personality first yeah. Like, just stop. Yes, just stop being a creep. He came up with a cunning plan. He would dress up as... (laughs) He would dress up as a maid. Go to the newly married couple's house. When he got there, he would say he had an important letter. Obviously, no one would notice he was a dude in a French maid's outfit. And they would let him enter his ex's home and shoot her, her husband her mother, and himself. Jeez. How could such a clever scheme possibly go wrong? Jesus. <clears throat> not that not doing things in half measures. He had a custom French made outfit made for him with a matching wig and hat with not the veil. Not doing things in half measures. I like that. Like, <laughs> yeah. Just, yeah. Uh-huh. I'm sure the seamstresses had trouble keeping a straight face when they measured him for his disguise. There is no mention if he intended to shave his legs or if the costume included fishnet stockings. If he didn't succeed in shooting them, I'm sure the sight of his hairy legs would have been enough punishment for Camille's infidelity. He procured two double-barreled pistols as backup. Uh, oh, uh, but as backup, he also grabbed some strychnine and laudanum. <laughs> Before long, I know what strychnine is. Uh, what was laudanum? The I think oh. it's a. Um, I think it's like a, I, I, I probably shouldn't even speculate, but I will. I think, <laughs> I think it's like a sedative, but I okay. could be wrong. Okay. Before long, I mean, which could be um, dangerous in doses, uh, on, right? Yes, uh-huh. of course, especially paired with the strychnine. Well, the strychnine itself is pretty bad, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Before long, he was on a stagecoach and heading off on his objective. Three days into the trip, he managed to lose his foolproof disguise. He had left it in the first stagecoach he had taken, so he left his little outfit behind. Hector had to try three different establishments before he's found someone willing to make him another one. This is what happened when incels have too much money and time on their hands. Oh, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> you've got to give the guy points for staying power. There's no way I would get go into one shop to ask for a French maid's outfit, and he must have had balls of steel to get kicked out of two shops before finding a merchant was understanding enough to help him out. The coach needed to be rerouted, so the trip became far longer. By now, our intrepid adventurer was beginning to have second thoughts. <laughs> the last straw was when he fell into the water in Genoa and nearly drowned. Yeah. Accounts differ on if he jumped or fell. The near-death experience convinced him he should reconsider his project, and he headed back to Rome. Hector had been told that if he left Italy, he would lose his scholarship, and luckily, he had changed his mind before he had crossed the border. One of the first things he wrote on his return to Rome was an overture to King Lear, the story of a guy that got dicked over by a, quote, evil lady. Uh, yeah. It's always the lady's fault, it, isn't it? I mean, always. Like, it, it, <clears throat> like, you can't wear what you're wearing because it makes me become a rapist yeah, yeah exactly like you made me become a rapist mm-hmm. not i'm a rapist mm-hmm. <laughs> i mean and, and you'll 
you'll see modern day arguments for that, and every time I hear it, like I want to throw up. It's like, are you fucking like, are That's you disgusting? An, like, are you an adult? Like, like what if what if that was your kid or your niece? Oh sure, or, of course, of course. Know? Well, what it is is this is what the patriarchy does. Yeah. <clears throat> so yeah, of course. Camille's marriage lasted just four years before her husband kicked her out because she was a touch too promiscuous for him. In the 1800s, it wasn't considered a problem if a guy had trouble keeping his penis in his trousers, but women were held to a higher standard. Yes, of course. (laughs) Yeah. Wait, that that was the case in the 1800s? Oh, it's still the case today. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) As is and ever will, twill shall be. And and penicillin wasn't even around. (laughs) Yeah. Berlioz didn't like Italy much, but he did survive two years before heading home. All right, now we're on to the return to France and success with Ah. Harriet. Hector went back to Paris and conducted a concert, including the Symphonie Fantastique. By now, someone had informed Harriet that Berlioz had written the music for her. She attended the concert, so after all these years, she's finally like, oh, this was written for me. (laughs) Like this thing. She attended the concert and was impressed enough to agree to meet Hector. The storyline Berlioz had written about the symphony sounded like the mad ravings of an incel, yes, on an internet forum. But that didn't bother Harriet. They started seeing each other. Harriet, I'm so disappointed. <laughs> well, it's a it's a different time. It is a different time. His English wasn't great and her French wasn't any better, so they couldn't even talk to each other. Her more natural style of acting and the fact that she had a strong Irish accent was unpopular with the English critics. She had always been far more successful in France, so the idea of moving back to Britain wouldn't have been appealing. Oh, maybe she's seeing him as like a meal ticket to stay in France. Harriet's career was going downhill, and after the directors of a play she was in took off without paying her, she was heavily in debt. (coughs) Opinions differ on how much that influenced her opinion of Berlioz. Hector had a novel approach to courting the love of his life. Oh no, I don't know. Do we want to hear this? I'm yeah. I'm, I'm not loving the uh, what's what's about to happen here, but I'm... after a few dates, he took a dose of poison, oh. making sure it wasn't enough to kill him. Then he told Harriet what he had done and proposed. <laughs> when she then told him that she really did love him and would marry him, he was so ecstatic he told her where to find the antidote he had conveniently stashed in her <laughs> So he's staging a suicide to get her. To marry him. I like that he's committed to the bit. Like, it's, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, you know, you want to get uh, the lady's attention. That's a good way out. And, <laughs> no, it is know. not. It's all terrible. But if I was a lady, I would have been like, yeah, I'm not doing any of that. And I would have just kept going wherever she was going. Like, what? <laughs> oh, my God. It only took a year before they were married against the wishes of both families. Harriet's father was a Freemason. And that was enough to offend Hector's Catholic mother. The marriage took place in the British Embassy in Paris as a compromise to both families. Their first couple of years together went well, even though they didn't have a lot of money. Soon the couple were blessed with a son. A grandson is a great way to heal a rift in a family, and Berlioz's mom and dad wanted to be involved in the boy's life. That didn't mean they approved of Harriet. Nothing helps a marriage more than living close to in-laws that are willing to voice their disapproval of your wife. It makes things so much better when they let her know their feelings on a regular basis. Yeah, also, you know what's a, a really shitty dynamic is to be like, oh, we love and dote on this grandchild and hate its mother. Yeah. You know? It's, it's weird. Like, that's that's just not cool. No. So... Berlioz's music wasn't popular in France, sorry, in Paris, and the music critics hated him. Other foreign composers had a different opinion. Paganini was so impressed by his music, he gave him 20,000 francs, um, and that was quite a bit of money. Sorry, <laughs> distracted by our dryer, did he? <laughs> um, his concert reviews helped him financially, but he had to leave the country to get a good review of his own work. He also made money conducting other people's music. It really bothered Hector that his music wasn't well-liked locally, and he suffered from depression. This wasn't unusual for romantic composers at the time. Even Beethoven had taken quite a bit of stick for his third symphony, and he pretty much just bent the rules of classical music. 
Berlioz broke the rules and wrote new ones in crayon. I'm sure after listening to this, you'll be completely surprised that the marriage started to go downhill. Harriet's career was in the toilet, and she took it out on Hector. There were epic fights in a mix of bad English and dodgy French. Harriet became focused on questioning her hubby about the women he met in the orchestra. After the constant fighting, Berlioz decided that he may as well have an affair, as Harriet was going to make life difficult anyway. Might as well. (laughs) He hooked up with a mezzo-soprano called Marie Rossio. Maybe, again, pronunciation. Harriet responded to the affair and the loss of her career by drinking heavily. Everybody knows that getting hammered regularly is a sure way of fixing a broken marriage, but for some strange reason, it didn't work this time. (laughs) The more she drank, the more she fought with Hector, and the more violent the arguments became. Mrs. Berlioz wasn't above giving her husband a bit of a kicking when things became heated. Honestly, a bit. this is a man who kind of deserves <laughs> kicking, but whatever. Um, not to make light of domestic violence, but... <clears throat> Harriet separated from Hector in 1843. Berlioz supported her financially, but Harriet suffered a series of strokes over the next five years. Hector continued to visit her even after she became almost completely paralyzed and couldn't speak. She died in 1854. Yikes. Ugh. So Hector and Marie. Marie Rossio was 14 years younger than Harriet. So eight years younger than Hector. Hector was more shallow than a toddler's paddling pool. (laughs) They seemed a perfect match. Her real name was Marie Genevieve Martin, but she used her mother's maiden name as a stage name. He did his best to help her career, but her lack of talent worked against any attempt to further her career. Berlioz himself commented that her singing sounded like, quote, she was meowing like a herd of cats, quote. <laughs> So he loved it. He loved it. In other words, yes, strong endorsement. Remember, he was a critic, too. So. Correct, yes. Most of Berlioz's pals felt that Marie's good looks didn't make up for her bad temperament. Hector's friends and other composers absolutely hated her. Wagner once said he wondered if, quote, the Almighty wouldn't have done better to leave the woman out of the scheme of creation, end quote. <laughs> that's, that's a great old-fashioned insult. You know what? That's going pretty deep right mm-hmm. there. That's uh, that's going for the throat. Yes. Philosophically. Uh, this is saying something as Wagner is legendary for being <laughs> yeah. one of the top three assholes in classical music history. This might have had something to do with Hector and Marie walking out of a Wagner concert that was being conducted by Liszt. This is a, I love the name dropping here. The three men were friends, and this put a strain on their relationship. I haven't heard much of Wagner's music, but I have listened to enough to know walking out might have been a good option. <laughs> Wagner is known for, like, nine-hour-long operas in German. That's too long. <laughs> like, you yes, gotta turn that shit down to, like, mm-hmm. three tops. <laughs> that's that's actually a typical length for <laughs> yeah. operas, like, around three. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wagner is technically very clever, but his music is very hard to listen to, and the fact that he was a well-known racist asshole who slept with anyone wearing a skirt is enough to put me off trying very hard. Also, you know who liked Wagner's music, right? Well, I'm sure plenty of people, but who? Hitler. Yeah. yeah. Yep. He was, uh, he was much beloved by the Nazis. He, he, he uh, celebrated his entire collection. Or his entire, his entire catalog. catalog. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the only audio we have of Hitler, speaking of Wagner's entire catalog. Mm-hmm. Berlioz and Marie stayed together until her de- her death in 1862. She died of a heart attack. How is he outliving all these women? Marie's mother stayed with Hector until he died. This wasn't the end of Hector's love life. He did hook up for a year with a girl 26 younger, twenty six years younger than him for about a year, and he also got in a contact, into contact with his first love, Estelle. They corresponded regularly until he died on the 8th of March, 1869, at 65 years old. Hector always said that he had two great loves in his life, Harriet and Estelle. Mm. He really did love Harriet, but, was too, but, with, but two highly strung people living together was never going to end well. Berlioz had Harriet's body be exhumed so it could be buried next to him when he died. Marie is buried on the other side of him. And that's how they still rest together this day. Jeez! And that was Hector Berlioz, the life 
and loves a pajama game. No kidding. Okay. <laughs> Bit of a disaster of a life. Well, I mean, depending on who you ask. I guess. I guess. <laughs> I mean, it's quite a life. We can say that. Yeah, there's there's a life. Um, yeah. <laughs> like, maybe Berlioz was someone who could have um, benefited from the It's a Wonderful Life treatment. Or yeah. just being alive, like, later, maybe. I mean, who knows? Mm. He would have absolutely been a Reddit incel. Yeah. If he were elected. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, now he could have parlayed his experience into like a fifty million dollar contract yeah, with like yeah. some. Yes, he would have, uh, or or written the what's was the player's handbook or whatever you know, uh, not the play, the you know the guys who do stupid shit. <laughs> I'm not explaining this well. It's okay. Um, the player's handbook. You or... know the guy, guys who um, neg women and like have all the stupid rules about like. I kind of see what you mean. Yeah. But it, there's like a the, a guy wrote a book about it. And oh, okay, I'm, I'm not aware of that. Wasn't it? I don't know. Oh my god! Somebody <laughs> will know and will and will tweet us. <laughs> anyway, thank you, Stephen. As always, we are very yes. thankful for you. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, there we go. That was that. Yes. Well, that was Hector Berlioz, The Life and Loves of a Drama King. This has been another episode of All Bad Things. I'm David. I'm Rachel. We'll see you next week.